Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masachat Sukkah, daf Yud Zion, page 17. Page 17 opens conveniently with a Mishnah, so we're going to start with that. Hirchik et asikuch min adfanot shlosh atfachim psula. If you have your sukkah, now imagine your sukkah where you've got your walls, and now the schach is going to be on the top of it, right, as roofing. And then the distance from the roofing to the walls, meaning where the ceiling basically should meet the, the wall at the top of the wall, you have a, a distance of three tfachim of empty space, let's say, going down. So that is considered pasul, because as you'll all recall from Erevin, once you have three tfachim of open space, it it, it doesn't... It doesn't. It can't attach to anything, right? So then, that is too much space to call it a wall that goes up to the ceiling, to the roof of it. So pasul. Bayit shenifchat v'sikech al gabav im yesh menakota l'sikuch arba amot psula. So here's another case where the the decree is this is pasul. This is not going to work as a sukkah. If you have a you have basically a house, right? It's already a house. And then you're going to make a hole in the middle of the roof, right? And then you're going to roof over. You're going to put schach over that hole. Now, so this is already a crazy scenario, but if you've done this, and now from the wall to that schach, you have dalit amot or more, right? From the original roof, then that is considered not a sukkah, which is not really surprising, meaning it's a crazy scenario, but you... It, it, it doesn't really feel, it doesn't seem to me that that would be a sukkah. It seems like that is a house with a hole in it. Um, I, I, I imagine, though, that the converse is going to be true, right? That if you end up with less than Daladamot, then perhaps it really would be a sukkah, depending on how it's set up. Okay, and then the Mishnah continues. And a third case, but it's a bunch of cases combined, which is also going to be a not kosher sukkah. Namely, you've got a courtyard, and that courtyard is surrounded by at least by three sides, right? You've got um, a cassadra, right? A cassadra, we've talked about this before long ago. It's a portico. Um, and now, which is, right, so we're talking about something that is a roof, but it has no walls. So that if you have this roofing over your courtyard, and you don't have the walls, well, that's not really a sukkah, right? And likewise, if you have a sukkah that's very large, and um, at the edge of the of the roofing, you have a material, but the varsha ain't misachimbo, you have something that's not really fit to be schach, you know, some kind of thing that's subject to get tame, right? It's subject to ritual impurity, for example. Then if you have daladamot between that, Schach, the can't be schach. It's not really schach. It's roofing, let's call it. Um, then you're still going to say that's a pasul sukkah, right? The idea that you could maybe finesse it is not going to work here. Okay. So the Gemara goes on. The Gemara picks up, rather, from this, mis- this Mishnah and asks the question I, that I think we all want to know. Kolhani lamali. Why do I need all of these cases? Meaning, why do we need cases of where it's not kosher, why do we need cases listed of puzzle sukkahs where it will not work to begin with? And basically, and then we have to, I have to go back and explain something, which I did not ex- say yet, which is that all of these are fundamentally uh, dealing with the consideration of a curved wall, 
here day, and I think you talked about this some time ago, right? That the idea is that when you have a curved wall, then you are inherently, you have some kind of gap. You'll always have some kind of gap, um, or it's considered a gap between where you've got that wall and where it's going to hit the ceiling. So each one of these cases is going to be a little bit skewed in that way. And so shouldn't we just be able to say, if you have a curved wall and you have a gap, then you've got, then it's pasul and that should be sufficient. So the Gemara says, Shricha, we need all of these cases. The Gemara basically says, is going to explain why each of these cases is necessary. Right? We need to have all of these cases because if we only knew about the house right, that has this hole in the roof, right, then we would say, well, that only applies to this case, to that case of the house with the hole in the roof, because the walls were established to be part of the the house, and they were never established to be part of the sukkah to begin with. So I might think that it has nothing to do with the wall being a curved wall issue to begin with. And then, what if we're talking about the courtyard, right, where the courtyard has a portico all around it? And now we might say again, the walls are not a portico, but for the house that opens to the portico, then, right, then we say, well, that's not connected to the roof at all. And then we come back to this point that that is why the Mishnah needs to specify what the issue is. Meaning, it's not that they would be kosher otherwise, but any if you don't know why it's not kosher, why this sukkah is going to be pasul, then you might think that you could rectify the situation and make it kosher in some way that if you've got the wrong rationale for it, then you'll blow it, right? You'll end up thinking that you've fixed the issue and you have not. Okay, and then... And then Mar explains, if I had only two of these cases and not three, so again, the Mishnah says, well, if I only had these two cases, then what would we say when we've got a whole curved wall where you're, where the schach is schach, it counts as schach, it's not a problem, but you've got this roof to the house that's already there, or the portico is an issue because of the same problem, right? That it it was it's what um, it's from the uh, um, right? You have to have it prepared specially. It can't just already be existing. You might think that in all of those cases, those are those two cases we can d- deal with those rationales. But then, what about the case of the large sukkah, where the large sukkah is surrounded fully by its roofing, right? with a material that is some kind of substance that is not schach or cannot be used for schach to begin with. So maybe I would say that that case is not a problem because I've only been dealing with those two. Those two seem to cover everything. And the answer is no, those two do not cover everything. We need to also have this last case of the large sukkah where the schach is not fit to be schach. And therefore, and then with the, the, the parts that are legitimate schach do not actually reach the wall, then we would might that we might say the problem is the schach because that makes sense the first you know the first part of the schach doesn't isn't kosher for schach so therefore we include this case to say it's not about the schach it's about this curved wall business and that is why these three cases are pasul I will add um, beyond the gemara that it's still interesting to me that they are um, enumerated and elaborated upon 
rather than formulating some kind of principle about curved walls. But it does seem that, you know, if you want examples that are going to cover your bases, this mission is pretty thorough. So I like how the Mishnah, the Gemara at least, really wants to describe, you know, why do you need all of these cases? This is a very typical sort of Gemara discussion. Um, but this issue of the curved walls, you know, it's it seems to be one that's important when we consider, you know, what's considered to be a fit sukkah and all of these types of sukkahs where you're sort of taking a pre-existing structure or there's a piece of something missing, um, you know, and, and how and when, you know, does that make your sukkah okay to use? Um, I want to jump down to two things on the DAF here that I want to point out. And I found this DAF uh, really nice because there was a lot of detail about sort of the lives of the Amorim in a certain way. Um, so first we begin with this discussion. Amoraba, um, right? So Rabba says he finds the sages of the school of Rav, and we're going to talk a little bit more about Rav today. Right, who are sitting and saying in the name of Rab, right? Like you, you get the sense that Rabba, for what's going to be a rather lengthy dis- discussion, right, finds, you know, sort of comes into the Beit Midrash and he finds all these students of Rab sort of all sitting and discussing and, and really getting into the details of the Halachodosoka. Just a very beautiful and vivid picture of the type of learning that went on. And he says the following Avir Posel Bishloshah. And so the statement that they're discussing here is that space, right? Avir, space without roofing, right? Makes a sukkah unfit if there is three tfachim of space, right? But unfit roofing, in other words, here it's, you have covering, but let's say what it's covered with, you know, is not something that you're really allowed to use for schach. What amount of that makes the sukkah unfit? That has to be a measure of four tzfachim. And so it basically proceeds as a really nice sort of back and forth between Rabbah and these uh, and these students of Rav, where he, you know, basically tries, essentially challenges them, right? That's how I would say that, um, you know, that basically, you know, this doesn't seem to actually fit with our Mishnah because our Mishnah seems to say that it allows for our Ba'amot, which is much larger than our Batfachim, of Pasul Schach, Schach that's, you know, not really, uh, that's not really unfit. So why would three Tfachim be something separate for open space? And so, you know, they answer, well, the Mishnah is really talking about sort of the side of a Sukkah, right? Again, getting back to the curved wall. So the curved wall is different than just having open space. And they have this very nice, it's actually a rather long, and when I went through this, I was like, I couldn't really figure out which piece of this to read. But I just thought there was something so vivid about this whole passage. You really could see it played in your head of sort of Rabbi coming in this back and forth with the students, you know, where he says, well, what about this? And they answer. And then he says, well, what about this? And they answer. And then again, he says, well, what about this? And, you know, I just thought it, it, it painted a beautiful picture of sort of the discussion that happens around learning. I, I feel like whenever we see this kind of thing happening, you would think that this is the, the gist of every mission, every Gemara, right? Because this is, you know, 
Chazal are talking and they're presenting the text and they're presenting the halacha or the agadat or whatever it is. And you would think that this is always the presentation and it is not, right? Meaning we get the we get the meaning, the content, but we don't necessarily have that tableau of the of the people sitting and talking, you know, in the learning. And I I I share your your joy in this because, you know, it, it brings it to life in a way that it's not that the words themselves are not alive, it's that they are everlasting. So then when we see them in the context of the time of the people who said them, it, there's something also very like that's what I mean by like kind of it, it. It becomes alive because we hear how they said them, and now they last all the way to us, you know, for the for the rest of the content, which I find to be, you know, as I've said, exciting. I, I totally agree. And then the last thing I want to get to is on Amud Bet. There's basically a discussion about Ram Rabba's premise, right? Which is essentially, uh, you know, are shiurim distinct, right? In other words, like is it whereas it's three tzfachim for space, right? They don't seem to combine, but this may seem to be counter to what was in our Mishnah and also when it comes to Kalim. Um, But what was interesting what here was is interesting that here. they have sort of like two versions of Rabbah's statement. One is how it was learned in Surah and how it was learned in Nahardah. So when I was prepping the stuff, I mentioned to Anne, that, I, you know, I don't think we've talked about Surah Naharda for quite a while. And I felt like here was a good time, because both are mentioned on this page, just to talk about them a little bit. So we know that in Bavel, right, which is where the Babylonian Talmud is written, because, you know, it's the Talmud Bavli, there were basically three very important uh, yeshivas, academies, right? One was in Pumpedita, one was in Naharda, and one was in Surah. So we see two of them mentioned here. And they're really distinct yeshiva with different personalities and they were started in different ways. So, you know, we'll start with uh, the first one that's mentioned here, which is Sura. And this gets back to also what we learned about before with Rabba with Rav students, because Sura was started by Rav. Um, and, you know, uh, and, and it was probably, you know, it, it was probably around, people say from about 225 CE, and it goes all the way into the Gaonic period. So, you know, to about a thousand something C. So really existed for about 800 years. Um, and the thing to know about Surah is it's associated with Rav. So whereas, um, you know, Rav basically, because remember Rav learns, right, with Rabbi Huda Hanasi, he's sort of that bridging Amora. So he does spend some time learning in Eretz Yisrael. He comes to Babel and he gets to Surah and he sees that there's really not a lot of Jewish life. And so Shmuel, right, who's his like bar palukta, right? They're always arguing with each other. As we saw in yesterday, uh, yesterday's daf, right? Surah Shmuel is the is the rub in Naharda, and Rub basically starts the yeshiva in Surah. Um, and uh, you know, basically, people start to come in, and it eventually becomes this very very large yeshiva. Um, and there's even some texts that talk about that it had twelve hundred students. And it also was a very large building, supposedly, you know, that it had, all, you know, classrooms and a garden. And, you know, it was uh, sort of when you think about the three uh, yeshivas, I think this might have been the most sort of largest. Um, and then eventually, I think we've seen this on the down before, there's mention of another place called, you know, Mata Mechasia, 
which was a suburb of Surah. And there was sort of like a sub yeshiva that eventually got put over there. So some of the Amorim to know about is Rav is very important. Rav Huna is the Rosh Yeshiva there after Rav for 40 years. So those are like the two biggies, Rav Chista, Rav Ashi, right? Rav Ashi, who we say was one of the redactors of the Babylonian Talmud. Um, and then we even, uh, you know, uh, those are just some of the Amorim. I'm not even mentioning all of them. Um, but even Gaonim uh, that we see there uh, going all the way, you know, uh, so that's just an important thing to, to, to notice. Rav Sajah Gaon uh, learns in, in Surah. So it, it's really sort of an important yeshiva because it bridges the Amoraic time all the way through the Gaonic time. You know, there's this very small period of time of the Sabarayim. We can talk back for another time. So that's Surah. And then we have Naharda, right? So again, the idea here on the DAF is, is you have two yeshivot that had two different ways of analyzing what Rabbah's statement was, right? They, there were basically two different schools of thought of, of analysis here. So Naharda, um, oh, sorry. And the other thing about Surah is it's on the banks of the Euphrates. So that's also what's important. So Naharda is sort of an older um, Jewish settlement in Babel. And they actually could trace themselves back pieces of it to actually Yehoyachim. Um, and it, but it also, um, and that Yehoyachim, when he was exiled by Nebuchadnezzar, they actually built a, a, a shul there. Um, and, you know, that was brought with stones that they brought with them from actually uh, Yerushalayim, right? Shaf Viatev, which we, which we uh, saw in the, uh, we, that was in, uh, uh, th that's been in the Gemara. I can't remember where we saw that, but we'll see it again. So that's, that's the, the shul and the settlement that was there. Um, and, you know, Naharda was basically uh, where Shmuel was. So that, that's what's important to remember here. Um, and, you know, and, you know, that, so that basically these are two totally different yeshivas um, and therefore they'll have their different Amorayim, different approaches to learning, um, you know, but again, just to know that Naharda is sort of the older of the two. Amemar, um, he's one of the other Amorayim that's sort of associated with Naharda and then Surah is, you know, the one with, with Rav um, and, uh, you know, was sort of started by Rav to sort of increase the Torah presence that was in, uh, that was in uh, Babel. So Surah Naharda, right, is, you know, Rav and Shmuel. Um, and these are, you know, basic history that you need to know as you learn the Talmud Babylon. Thanks for that. With that, we're going to close. Thank you for joining us. Um, that's our Duff discussion for the day. Come rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Come talk to us on our Facebook page. And tell us what you think of this Mishnah, this Gemara, the personalities come to life and their yeshivot. Until tomorrow, go and learn. Mm -hmm.